Hey, what's going on, CNFers? Okay, so there was this time when Roger Federer, Federer was one of the greatest tennis players in the world, and he didn't use a coach. He was like, bro, I'm good. But at some point during his plight to stay on top, the greatest player of all time, arguably, hired a coach. He needed someone to see what he couldn't see. Likewise, if you're a writer working on a memoir, maybe sports or maybe a book proposal, those are my areas of expertise, and you're ready to level up, someone to hold you accountable, shoot me an email, brendan at brendanamero.com, hey, and we'll start a dialogue. I'd be honored and thrilled, really, to help you get where you want to go. And those calls for submissions are out for the next issue of the audio magazine, Codes is the theme. Codes to live by. Mantras, personal beliefs, rules, oppressive, maybe liberating. I love people who are so principled they live by a code, whether that be Captain Fast, um, Fastastic? Jeez, B.O. Captain Fantastic or even the Mandalorian. This is the way. Give me your best 2,000-word essays about codes. Email Podcast at gmail.com with code in the subject line. Simultaneous submissions are fine, but if you have your piece accepted by another publication or are holding out for a more prestigious publication, let me know as soon as you can so I don't read and edit your piece because I even give notes to the rejected essays. I mean, what a guy. Uh, so uh, just uh, do that. Uh, the submissions should be uh, original, okay? Original submissions. Deadline's October 31st. This is the way. Well, that took a turn, Brendan. I was, we were going so well, this interview. <laughs> and oh, you call I'm me sorry. a failure. I'm taking <laughs> off my microphone. Oh, this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. How's it going? Ready for some, for some chatter? Well, not that much chatter, but you know. Five to six minutes. I'm sorry. It's just how long it takes. It's how long it takes. That's why you have a skip button, but I need to introduce the guests. So don't skip ahead, Susan. Tad Friend is here. Tad is a staff writer for The New Yorker, and he's written some of my favorite pieces over the years. A lot of great profiles and features. You know, back in 2014, he wrote this great profile on Brian Cranston at the end of the Breaking Bad run. And I pinged him on Twitter because I wanted to pick his brain about how he went about the piece. And he answered my questions. And, I, and I've hung on to that email ever since. Have I written a single profile on that level yet? No, but I think about it a lot. Tad also is the author of the new memoir, In the Early Times, A Life Reframed. It's about his father. It's about fatherhood, shame, regret, middle age. I read this book side by side with Brad Listy's Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And for some reason, they seem to really complement each other. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why, but they really did. It was like peanut butter and chocolate. It was a wonderful experience. I want to remind you to keep the conversation going on Twitter, at CNFPod, or at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. You can also support the podcast by becoming a paid member at patreon.com slash CNFPod. As I say, the show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. Members get transcript, chances to ask questions of future guests, special podcasts. I give away cool stuff. Like if my book proposal for this uh, thing I'm working on, if it sells, yeah, you better believe I'm going to share it with the Patreon audience so you have a, a little bit of a template to see what a winning proposal looks like. But if it doesn't sell, pie to the face. Also, 
this episode. And for the next few or so, maybe in the next eight, there'll be a mid-roll ad. If you don't want to hear an ad in the middle of the show, I'm dropping the file, well, the show ad-free on the Patreon page. So yet another wickedly exciting perk. Free ways to support the show. You can always leave a kind review or rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Written reviews for our little podcast that could go a long, long way towards validating it for the wayward CNFer. I mean, who the hell am I? But if you see all those reviews, you might be like, oh, wow, okay, I'll give it a shot. Got a couple new ones, so I'm going to read one right here. Save another one for next week. This one from Karen Workshops. Five stars. Inspired me to get writing again now. See, here I am writing. Seriously, though, I listened to Brendan's short episode today. It was about the talk chef thing. Chatting and reading his craft essay on cooking and writing parallels while I took the dog for an early walk, and I got interested. Then I listened to his interview with Jane Friedman with great pleasure, even though I'm not really interested in the business side of writing. Still, they made it interesting. And now I see the endless list of past podcast episodes, interviews of all the authors I know and don't know. Enough for the years to come. Then I looked him up and read The Day That Never Comes, and so far, that's a, a feature I wrote that I won an award for, uh, so so far I have not even touched the breakfast dishes. I'm assuming that those are the very early episodes. Brendan's interview style is casual enough to be easy and fun to listen to, serious enough to be inspiring. And on top of that, while it shouldn't matter, it helps that he's got the perfect podcast bass voice. Amazing. Thank you, Karen. Let's keep this train rolling, CNFers. Be sure you're heading over to brendanomero.com for show notes and to sign up for my monthly up to 11 Rage Against the Algorithm CNF and monthly newsletter. Say that however many times fast. First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. All right. So Tad is at Tad Friend on Twitter. And we talk a lot about structure and magazine writing, reporting and organizing, failure, success, what the subjects he reports on say about him, and a lot more. Really rich stuff. So let's get to it, CNFers. Here's the great Tad Friend. You know, how, uh, you know, where is tension on the forefront of your uh, generation of these stories? It's, it's in there. And I think, I think if it's sort of foremost in your mind, then you're just writing propulsively to get people to the next thing. Then you're, you might be getting close to thriller territory, right? you know, or Jack Reacher territory, which are, those are like, I totally love those books and they're very, you gobble them down. Uh, but they don't necessarily make you like three days later, think about them in, you know, while you're standing in line at the grocery store. And I think tension, there's a balance that I find myself always struggling with. Like I am always struggling with like nine things that I always often feel like, like a cartoon bubble of like all these sort Mm -hmm. of things in, in the air over my head that I'm struggling with to try to do simultaneously and in music, you can do that because you can say, well, let's bring in the flute here and then we'll have the bassoon and like they can be both, but, but they can both be at the same time, you know, and in writing you, when you're writing one sentence, you can't have a second sentence underneath it, you know, doing something. So you, you have to write sort of sequentially 
and try to somehow in some way that never works <laughs> evoke the flute and the bassoon at the same time. So this is a very long-winded and totally rambling and, and unhelpful answer to your question, but <laughs> but I think a good way of maintaining tension, I think there are two ways that I that come to immediately to mind. One is by ending, you know, like a scene or a moment and going really far away from it. And I often feel like the second section of a magazine piece, I try to go as far away as I in good conscience can from whatever I've done in the first section to indicate the overall, like, here's the map of the story. You know, it may have started in New York, but it's also going to take us to Portugal and South Africa, you know, um, and often they aren't so much geographical, but it's like, it's going to be about plant-based meats, but it's also going to be about the destruction of the earth, you know? And so you sort of try to set the larger context. And in the meantime, the reader is sort of, I, if you've done your job well with the first scene or two scenes or whatever, thinking, well, what about those guys who are drowning on the island? What, you know, wait, let's go back to them. So that, that is the sort of, you know, the going away in a way that feels purposeful rather than just like you're stumbling around like a, a drunkard can be helpful because then the person is learning something, but that feels that keen sense of like the writer is going to take me back there, but they, you know, he feels like this is important that I also know this. So that's exciting. So that's one thing which you, you, you have to be careful about because then if your third scene suddenly is like set on Pluto, then people are going to like, wait, where are you going? What's <laughs> happening? I don't get it. Um, so you have to somehow be cognizant of what you've done earlier. And the other thing I, I feel like, which is maybe not a tension thing, but I think, maintains tension rather than creates it, which is, I feel like a really good way to almost smuggle useful information in. I mentioned a piece I wrote about impossible foods and plant-based meats a couple of years ago. There's a lot of like science and global warming and deforestation stuff that I sort of had to get in there because that's the reason that impossible foods got started and you to explain what the founder why he a lifelong scientist decided to start this company you sort of have to talk about methane gas and how many you know times worse it is than carbon dioxide in terms of global warming and you have to get into all that stuff if you just deliver paragraph after paragraph of stodgy facts you are risking having the magazine being hurled across the room. And fair <laughs> enough. If you're having two or three or seven people talk about something, you're showing that scene and the reader feels like she, it's really helpful to understand they're talking about methane. And then you occasionally are saying methane is, you know, actually 25 times more powerful global warming gas than carbon dioxide. In the middle of that, they're feeling like, oh, that's really helpful information because now I understand why this person is so incensed about methane. So if you can kind of syringe in facts as you're having a scene, it's a great way of maintaining the tension without diluting it and then just like falling off a cliff by having a whole section of here's some really boring shit you ought to know. Right. And getting to that 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 notion of all the, the cartoon bubbles going on like above your head or even the cartoon bubbles that are kind of popping out out of the story you're making, uh, how do you go about uh, maybe just, you know, putting a pin in those things and organizing those thoughts so so you can write, as you were saying, like you're writing sequentially, but you know eventually you got to sort of check a lot of these boxes. That, that organizational, uh, I guess, ethos, it, it can be very hard to maintain over the course of a very hefty piece of writing. So I wonder how you approach that. 
I, I wish I knew. I feel <laughs> I, I've like occasionally talked to other writers or read other writers' accounts of what they try to do organizationally. And I'm always like incredibly fascinated. It's like reading about someone else's sex life. But then I also think, well, that's, I don't want to do that. I would, you know, I would, I would never wear that. So like, uh, it's idiosyncratic and I, you know, like I, it works for me and that is, but not all that well. Like I feel like it's laborious and not efficient. Um, I, the sort of prosaic dull thing is I sit down and like write little one sentence or half sentence little reminders about each important thing that I want to get in there. And there might be like, there might be in a long piece. I think that, I think I want to get in 1500 little facts or scenes or quotes or things that are just nuggets of some kind. And then I usually end up with about half of that. But I think at the beginning, I'm really convinced that they all should be in there and that that probably pretty much the whole magazine should be turned over to my magnum opus. (laughs) So then, and then I have them and I, then I kind of like loosely organize them by like, topic like methane and cows and um you know vegetarian burgers early failures or whatever it is or uh flavor science all these things that might you know like that i need and then the scene with so-and-so and the scenes in the laboratory and like put them all so there ends up being like 90 or 100 different little kind of organizational things. And then I try to like, they're, they're like all boxcars. I sort of think of them as boxcars. Mm-hmm. And then I try to get the boxcars organized and make a train, which is the outline. And very often it means shifting, you know, the chickens and the grain from one boxcar to another. You're like, oh, it doesn't really work there. It's over here. And then I kind of have an outline and it's a very rough, but I sort of feel like, oh, this is kind of be the story. Yeah. And then I start writing. And then by the end of the second paragraph, I have thrown my outline at the side. <laughs> which is why it's such a terrible process except for me. But I can't start writing without it. I need the psychic reassurance of this totally factitious and somewhat useless outline that I instantly depart from because I'm like, I can't wait to tell that later. I've got to tell that now. Which may actually turn out not to be true because like I write a, a first draft that's sort of the vomit draft. And at a certain point, I get so frustrated with what the fact that I have no no outline and no idea where I'm going that I'm sort of just inputting random chunks that I'm like, all right, I'll just do this little scene here, even though it doesn't belong there. And I'll just hear, oh, I forgot to talk about, you know, I forgot to talk about the, all the, you know, people in Washington who are fighting this law, you know, so I'll just throw a sentence to like write more about this later. It's, it's, and it would be anyone nowhere near public, not even though the best editor in the world could take that version and turn it into something. And then I take all that and like almost every paragraph when sentence gets moved around to some other place. It's a very long process. It's like the writing usually takes like four to six weeks. I hate to say, I wish it were faster. I feel like there are people who write, there's sort of two basic kinds of writers. There's the people who can only write the second sentence when the first sentence is perfect. They're sort of the lapidary chiselers who are like, tick, 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 and then yeah. they, okay. And they know, they kind of know where they're going or they figure it out as they go. And then there's the other kind who can only write the first sentence after they've written the the, the thousandth bad sentence and have a really shitty draft, and then they can go back and fix it. And I guess that's me. To me, what comes to mind, too, is uh, an NFL head coach is their call sheet. It's like they've got all the things that they would like to do, and then the game presents its own kind of challenges. And you're like, all right, well, we've got to scrap this and kind of just react to what's going on on the field, you know, based on all the study you've done and everything. And it's not like everything is for, for waste, but it's like, okay, now we can be nimble based on new information. So it's kind of like, 
you know, the draft in progress. It's kind of like the game in progress. It's like, okay, now we have to, uh, how do we react to this thing that just happened that I had no idea was going to come up? <laughs> yeah. And often like, it's sort of funny because, you know, like in the same sports analogy where a great opponent brings out the best in you, like yeah. the best, you know, like playing, playing someone, a great tennis player, you're like, I mean, if they're not insanely good, you're likely to play better tennis than if you're playing a terrible tennis player. And I sort of think that the funny thing about that, of course, is that the other tennis player is you yourself. You're playing against yourself. There's no other team running onto the field with strange uniforms. You're sitting there at your computer <laughs> looking <laughs> out the window. So, uh, but the best ideas, the things that you didn't know, and in, in, in that sense, either the opponent or your collaborator, if you will, are the things that come to you when you're sitting down and you think, oh, this is the way to connect those two things in one sentence instead of two big, huge paragraphs. Or, oh, here's an idea. I realize as I'm musing about it that I really, that I really, because I don't really know what I'm heading towards or even what I feel or think about the topic until I start writing. That's the, that's the big problem is all the other stuff is kind of like, is like calisthenics getting you ready, but so you can run on the field and then to continue your field analogy. Yeah. It's like, then you're on there and it's like, all right, well, you know, uh, let's call an audible. Oh, this episode is brought to you by athletic greens. Listen, you've probably heard of these guys and I have yet to try this product, but what I dig about them is that they're plant-based, which is important to me. Otherwise this would be a non-starter with one delicious scoop. You get 75. Wow. That's, that's a lot, right? Right. Hank. Uh, 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. I'm excited to dig into this stuff because it's vegan. But if you're one of those keto bros... It's compliant and uh, all that stuff, like paleo too. It also supports better sleep quality and recovery. So if you're an early riser, you can wake up fresher and ready to tackle your work or your workouts, whatever you want to do. I don't know. What else is pretty rad is in 2020, Athletic Greens purchased carbon credits that support projects protecting old growth rainforests. If you want to experience Athletic Greens to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Right, right. And uh, I, I read that you had had said, uh, you know, I guess I have a strength or weakness where I feel like I can't start writing until I know what I'm talking about. Not just 80 percent, but feel like I'm totally confident in being able to assert something. So, uh, yeah. How did you arrive at the fact that, you know, you got to get all that material and not start writing to kind of paint yourself into that sort of corner? Like you got to have it all before you can proceed. Well, it's it's definitely a luxury and it, it is probably a byproduct of the New Yorkers giving us you know, not a whole lot of adult supervision and a lot of time to do things. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like after like two or three weeks of reporting, I could probably do a piece that's, you know, 60 to 70% as good maybe or interesting. Um, and you get a lot, like I, I feel when I look through my notes, I often get a lot at the beginning. A lot of the stuff that I end up using is at the beginning and at the end, which maybe suggests cut out the middle. <laughs> but I don't know, like you, the middle is often people talking to you and telling you to talk to someone else who you talk to at the end. So 
I would, I would love to be more efficient about it. Um, and it definitely is a sort of tick or crutch or something to feel like I have to kind of feel even, even falsely that I know what I'm talking about before I start writing. But it, it, there is a point where I feel like, okay, I can start writing. And it's, it's when I feel like I have, you know, I have thoughts now. I feel fairly sure that, you know, if I talk to 10 more people, they'd be telling me some version of what I already have heard. And, you know, I could keep reporting and it could be a book or I could, you know, but this is, you know, here's, here's the right amount of information for the story I need to tell. And the possible curse of, you know, writing a New Yorker story is you kind of think you can tell every story in like six or eight or 10 or 12 at most 14,000 words. And maybe you can, maybe you don't need books anymore. I don't know, but there aren't that many magazines that publish really long stories. So there are lots of books too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah. Like, or, or even just turning over the entire issue to Lawrence Wright for for coronavirus. Like it's like, here you, here you go, Lawrence. That doesn't, yeah, that doesn't happen very often. No. You know, you, there was a, another time you said that uh, there used to be this unspoken snideness or distance in my writing, in your writing. Um, so I wonder how you overcame this to write from a greater sense of empathy and understanding over time. That, you know, I think that a lot of that has been unconscious. It wasn't because I wasn't aware of it as much as I should have been. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a byproduct of me writing because I wanted people to pay attention to me. Right, rather than to yeah. what I was writing about. I wanted people to think I was great and like a really good writer and knew a lot of words and could use them and more or less correctly. And <laughs> all of which I think comes through pretty clearly on the page when I look back at some of my earlier stuff and I kind of want to lie down for a while when I read it because um, it's painful <laughs> and it's callow. It's youthful and immature and unguarded, I guess is the best you could say for it is that I was unaware of how much I was revealing about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a life thing where, you know, over time I've become, I've come more to feel two things. One, I feel like the focus should be on what I'm writing about, whatever it is. And sometimes I'm writing about myself, like if it's a personal history or, you know, in the book that I just wrote, but the, the focus isn't on me, the writer, but on me, the person who's writing, which is an important distinction. And even though it sounds like it might not be, I think, well, I think the the, the second part of it is that I, I don't feel that I, I don't want, I don't feel the impulse to show off anymore as much. And it's not like about that. It's, it's more trying to tell the story in the best way, whatever it, is, it may be and tell the story as it presents itself to me. And there, obviously another writer would tell it a different way, but if you kind of focus on the story focus and focus the other, I guess the other part of it really is also telling the story means paying attention to what I'm feeling about something, not just kind of taking shots at it or seeing it as an opportunity to like, make remarks, you know, or show off my, my wit or my, you know, quip or my, you know, attitude, but simply like, if I'm feeling here's something that's important and here's why, or this made me uncomfortable and here's why, or this made me laugh and here's why that, and if you can come out, evoke that in the reader, I think it's a better story. So I'm not sure I, I've succeeded at all the things every time or even any time because who knows, but that at least I feel like I'm clear on what I'm trying to do and trying and also not trying to do. Yeah. It, I think that's the, the trap of a lot of up and coming writers who are very inspired by stylists, you know, be they 
David Foster Wallace or Joan Didion or Susan Arlene, whoever. And it's uh, eventually you come to come to the point where you kind of surrender to story and you're like, all right, I have to kind of check some of my cleverness and my what I think is funny in service of of the story itself. And then I think by doing that, the, the little, when you can drop in that little grace note, a little very nice turn of phrase, it actually stands out and serves the story. Whereas you, sometimes if you do that too much, you just come across as, you know, a, I don't know, a showman or a comedian bombing on the stage, which is, you know doesn't serve anybody <laughs> yeah i was looking for something i'd written and i thought it was in this book this i had a collection of pieces that came out about 20 quite literally 20 years ago exactly and i was looking for a story that i thought was in there which it turned out not to be and i kind of came upon my forward to the book and i was reading it and i was like and i was thinking oh this is kind of funny and it would be funnier if it was less funny like <laughs> um like yeah. i was trying so hard to be funny that i felt like there was a lot of like as you said, the comedian, you know, where it's, it had a little bit of a like performative, here's another one. If you didn't like that one kind of quality where it it was, it seemed insecure to me and needy. And so I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I didn't feel like terrible about it. I was like, that's who I was then. So like, okay. Um, And uh, luckily the book didn't sell all that well. So not that many people know about it, except all the people are going to hear about it right now yes. on your podcast the legions of people let's flock to yes. this book no i mean i i feel like probably there's going to be a really like seismic tremor from this um that's gonna <laughs> were it possible for there to be a seismic tremor uh, the book is lost in magnolia travels in hollywood in other foreign lands add to cart click all the people who are thinking about maybe buying my 20 year old collection are not gonna <laughs> Think themselves. Um, so yeah, you can sort of see it, and 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 you know, like who's to say that in twenty years from now I won't look back at the stuff I'm writing now and have the same feeling. So we'll, we'll see. You know, it's a, a amazing Tad is that I um, way back when I, this would have been 2014. I saved I saved the email that um, you and I had a very short exchange about your Brian Cranston profile, which I which I love the you know, the man who knocks or the one who knocks, and it was uh, I peppered you with a few questions just about how you went about reporting a piece of that nature, you know, the structure and such. Cause I, you know, I really loved it. I remember I, I under, like I undersold the word count just from my own instinctual thing. I thought I thought it was like 5,000 words and you were like, actually it was like 8,500 and you didn't say that to correct me. It was just like, it was a way that made, I couldn't believe it was almost 50% longer than what I had ballpark because you, you know, you were able to just tease it out and it read shorter than it was, which is really a testament to a well, a well reported and an even better written piece. And I want to, and I've saved this email for so long and I just, there's um, an element of it that I think is just a wonderful uh, element that you brought to it when talking about structure and you said, you know, structure I think is the hardest and most crucial aspect of storytelling. It is storytelling unfortunately no one structure works for every story or even most stories you have to reinvent the wheel every time so do you find that that's still true with uh the stories that you're reporting to this day yeah i i i deeply wish there was a template that i could just apply you know (laughs) like you know like like a waffle iron you just pour it or in the goo bring the waffle iron down and then you got a waffle. That'd be so great. Like, right. uh, might get boring it, then it, too, right? <laughs> it might. And the reader might notice, you know, we've had waffles all every day this week. Could we have a, <laughs> you know, some French toast, but, 
But it is frustrating to me, or well, I don't think it's frustrating anymore. For a long time, it was frustrating to me because I, I sort of felt obscurely that there should be a, in some sort of Joseph Campbell-y, hero's journey kind of way, this one narrative where you you know you you bring back the elixir after you've done these seven other things, and it just doesn't feel like that's right. So it feels like, and it, but the freeing so. I I was disabused of that I guess just by trial and error and maybe the, maybe it is right maybe there's some great I just I'm too close to it to know that there's some template that I am following in slightly different ways that feel very different but I feel like each story has a different has to have its own structure and I feel like with good editing like most a lot there's a lot of writers who can write sentences and paragraphs you know but I feel the reader the writers who really hold my attention are ones who getting back to your point earlier about tension and pacing sense of surprise setting things up in a subtle way that you don't necessarily see that then pays off later that you don't realize oh that's you know that's that going to mean this later maintaining surprise without feeling like it's manipulative you know like that you that you that you haven't the, the writer hasn't kept some key thing from you to spring it on you but maybe has figured out an artful way to disclose information at the, at a time when it feels like it makes sense and feels resonant and natural. And so all those things, like a, a writer who can do that, like really with structure, that's all structure, I think, or at least a lot of it is structure. And I think structure is the hardest part. Like I, I feel like, I feel that I learned how to write sentences and paragraphs relatively young, youngish. And structure is, is, I'm still learning and still feel baffled by a lot of the time. Mm. And, uh, you know, Mark Marin of the WTF podcast, he's, when he has SNL cast members on his show, he's always obsessed with how comics of that nature get on SNL. And he's got this uniquely, uh, a unique obsession with it. Because I think he, at one point or another, had auditioned but really wanted to be on it and never could. And I have a similar obsession with New Yorker writers and with a similar ethos behind it. Um, so I just, you know, for my own elucidation, you know, what's your uh, New Yorker story and how you arrived uh, to become a staff writer there for the, you know, better part of, geez, I don't know, 25, 30 years now? Close to it? Uh, 20, 24 years. 24. Um, yeah. But it feels like 30. Um, <laughs> I, I wrote some talk of the towns for the New Yorker in the in the 80s when I was in my... Um, mid twenties. And then I wrote some more in the early nineties when I was in my early thirties. So I had a little bit of an acquaintance with the magazine. And then I wrote a piece for them that was assigned at 2000 words in 1998 about Gary Shandling, the comic and his manager, Brad Gray, who were suing each other. Um, hmm. And it was sort of ugly in the way that those things can be. And lots of like people, you know, you sort of like the allies of the two men had to choose sides. It was like, you know, it wasn't like that everyone in Hollywood had gone to one camp or the other, but it felt like that in the sort of slightly overheated world of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And I had written a piece seven or eight years before that about the Larry Sanders show. And I'd spent a little time with Gary Shandling and met Brad and spent some time with him a little bit when they were still friendly and very professionally close. So anyway, an editor at the New Yorker who I knew, um, from having worked with her very closely at Spy years before when we were both editors there, said, oh, do you want to write about a, look, a little postcard from L.A.? I was going to assign it like 2,000 words. 
about um, this thing. And they knew that the New York Times was also looking into it. So there was a bit of a, do the, you have to do this fast. So I got on a plane and went out. And because the Times was had, had sort of already gotten the cooperation of Gary Shandling, I perforce was getting the cooperation of Brad Gray. Hmm. So, because, you know, they, each side was trying to get it, tell its side of the story first and loudest in a big publication. So I went out on a Wednesday reported really like all days kind of crazily like thinking this could be my chance to you know break into the new yorker turn in a draft the following friday which is pretty fast for and i turn in like eight thousand totally unstructured disorganized words but it, it had it there was good stuff in it i had gotten good material i think and so they ran it you know relatively relatively longer like maybe six thousand words and then had, it had been assigned and they liked it and um, they ran it like right away, you know, like they sort of shoved it in there to get it in front of the times. It was all about the competition and Tina Brown was still the editor then. So she liked, she was very keen on that kind of like we beat the competition and we have this big splashy thing. Mm-hmm. And she had this mistaken idea that I knew about Hollywood that mm-hmm. based on the fact that I just, you know, I had knew like one and a half things about two people in Hollywood. <laughs> so <laughs> But I didn't necessarily go out of my way to disabuse her of that idea. So, um, yeah, she offered me a contract and I took it. It was nice. that simple. Um, it was, pre- yeah, it was pretty, it was nice. And, and it also helped, I think, that Vanity Fair was interested also probably based on that story, having gotten a certain amount of attention. Um, so that when there's, you know, when there was, when you have more than one person interested, it's always better. So um, that helped the New Yorker make up its mind. And then um, Tina Brown left six weeks later. David Ramon and I were kind of like staring at each other, like, who's this guy? And we both had that kind of, who's this guy <laughs> feeling. And I'm sure he would have rather that there had been an empty space that he could have filled with his own person, but um, somehow it worked out. So Nice. Again, yeah, just, it's like, it's like the, the GM coming in and like just clearing house. Like I want my coach and my quarterback. It's like, hmm. yeah, yeah. And who's this like draft pick who just showed up, you know, on the yeah. bus. And it was like, it was a little bit like that because, uh, yeah, because we, we, you know, like we didn't meet until I was writing my second piece for the magazine on contract after that, like, you know, um, and it was a little bit of like a, hmm, okay, <laughs> hope it goes well, you know. What so. would you say your, uh, the the subjects you're most drawn to and maybe based on that you know what they what they might say about about you about the people you're drawn to yeah i think i wrote about this actually a little in the book that you mentioned um so i i realized that without in any way intending this i think i'm drawn to people who who feel like even no matter how successful they are they feel like failures um and that's interesting to me in a in a kind of Sisyphean pushing the boulder up the hill, great artists are never, never satisfied. People who are pushing themselves, driven, don't feel like, I think hacks in life, not just in art, but hacks in general are, are satisfied. They're like, yeah, that's pretty good. I'm, I think, yeah, I killed it. <laughs> and like I wrote a piece a couple of years ago about Donald Glover, who was inexhaustibly creative and interesting and driven by a sense that he hasn't quite done it right. I think every time, even though he's done some, you know, just mind-blowingly 
terrific stuff in so many different arenas. I think he's, he never feels like, okay, that was, you know, that was good. Like, I'm good. I'm just going to go to Fiji for a while and chill. And I don't know, he probably wouldn't call himself a failure. I don't think he would, but I think he would feel like he hasn't been a success and it's come at a large cost, you know, and feels restless. So um, I think that that restlessness and sense of wanting to be better and feeling like other people have done it better and you're not quite doing it right. Um, that interests me. That's something I've been drawn to. I think unless I, I did a certain number of Hollywood or entertainment based stories in my earlier years of the magazine, um, somewhat deriving out of Tina Brown's misimpression. And then I think some of the, I've done some Silicon Valley based things that are interesting to me. And, uh, I'm working on a story now about door to door salesmen that I find really fascinating. Hmm. Just, I like, you know, the sort of people, the machinery of persuasion is interesting. How you convince people who really want you, did not invite you, want you to go away as soon as possible. How you convince them to buy something pretty quickly often. So I don't have, again, it's sort of like the structure thing. I don't have a, oh, this make, this is a good story. It has these four ingredients. It really is a gut feeling of like, that's going to be interesting. I don't, you know, like, and it's like door to door salesman. I was interested in salesman for a while and I was sort of thinking like door to door seems like the hardest version. Cause if you go to a car dealer, you want to buy a car, but if yeah. you answer the doorbell, you don't want to buy a vacuum. Like that's not why you answer the doorbell. So, and I didn't, I didn't have at that point a person in mind to kind of center it around, but I just thought this is an interesting arena. And often I do find like it's an arena and then I try to figure out the way into that arena. Like I knew for years I wanted to write about a Hollywood agent and I sort of talked to a lot of agents and then found someone I thought would be good because he was sort of an anti-agent. He didn't like being a traditional agent. And then if it's, a, if you find the person who's at the periphery of the thing of the world you're interested in, but really good at it, but is different than all the other people, then you can write about both that person and the sort of more standard person. And you can, by exploring the space between them, you can show, you know, what it is that makes the agent. Like I think, mm. yeah. In the in your recent your most recent book, you you know, you'd written most of my best pieces were about people who, at even at the summit of their success, felt they'd failed, and uh, and and it gets you it gets to your point. I even in reading this book too, I you know, I don't, I didn't get a sense that. Uh, you know, you didn't necessarily celebrate your yourself as as a, an accomplished writer, uh, and I wonder, like for you, like what your relationship might be to your own success, or maybe do you even view what I externally see as your successes as maybe you know you haven't you haven't achieved what you're capable of, or you feel like you've failed. Well, that took a turn, Brendan. I was, <laughs> we were going so well this interview, and, <laughs> and oh, you call I'm me sorry. a failure. <laughs> I'm taking off my microphone. Uh, no, I'm. Uh, it's a great, you know, challenge that I try not to think about too much, honestly. Like, um, I'm not trying to duck your question because it's totally fair. I just, I feel like, you know, one of the interesting things about The New Yorker is you, no matter how happy you are with a story that you turn in and, and it comes out, is the editors are instant, instantly like, well, what's next? Like, and mm -hmm. there's not, there's not, a, there's no, there's no victory lap. Like, it's like, all right. Classic CNF pod aside right here. Isn't that the the demoralizing part? Like, you put in all this work, and then it's like, okay, what's next? 
it's so it's so demoralizing, dispiriting. And maybe for twenty four hours or so, you kind of you know win the day, and people are celebrating it. And then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, well, got to move on to the next thing. It's like it's like a starting pitcher. I mean, shoot, you could throw a no hitter, but five days later, yep, get back up there. Can't 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 dwell on that previous success or failure. In either case, ah, it's just a it's part of the grind. I sort of don't, you know, I can look back and think, oh, I'm happy with that story and that story, not so much with those two, but I don't spend a huge amount of time thinking about like where it's all going, uh, if anywhere. Um, I feel like my, I hope my my best stories are ahead of me. Let's, let's put it that way. I feel like, yeah. I don't feel like a failure. I don't feel like a failure. I don't feel like success. I feel like I'm learning on the job still and I hope getting better at it and I hope telling better stories more economically and ones that are, you know, do more of the things that I hope they will do. I hope they will move people and surprise them and make them laugh and make them think. And I hope I can do that better still in the future. And I don't feel like there was some golden age of me ever, but I don't feel like, mm-hmm there was one story that I wrote years ago that was great and everything else is an aftermath. I feel like I'm, hopefully I feel like I'm, it's an asymptote, but I hope I'm, I'm heading towards some kind of, you know, self-satisfaction. Well, I think that's the, the beauty of this, this craft is unlike being an athlete where you would look like, yeah, my peak years were 27 to 32 and Michael Jordan looks back on that. And he's just like, even though in his head, he's still thinks he's better than everybody else. But he looks He's still thirty year well, you know, yeah, thirty years removed from his athletic prime, and and it is something that ends. But with this, it's it is something that you can continually get better at and refine yourself and be more economical in language. Do ask better questions that get to a deeper sense of what your subjects are talking about or thinking about. So it's it's exciting in that sense that your best days, as long as you keep working at it, continually to be ahead of you until you're in the ground. Yeah, that's the optimistic view and the pessimistic one is that I'm lying to myself and, you know, like, <laughs> but if I believe they're still ahead of me, then it gives me, you know, impetus to keep keep doing it and trying to get better at least, um, you know, and I mean, I when, if I, in, on the rare occasions when I have some reason to go back and look at something I wrote many years ago that I don't even remember writing, so I'm reading it kind of fresh the way you would read A Stranger's Work, I feel like I'm often surprised by certain insights or pieces of information. I'm like, Oh, that's really interesting that, that this reporter, AKA me got that fact or, or that's an interesting thought, but I feel like I've, till I'm a little surprised by it cause it feels fresh cause it's not in me anymore. Um, but I don't necessarily feel like, Oh, there's all, it's like there's some lost wax theory of like structure or something that I have forgotten how to do. I do feel like it is additive in terms of the, my my craft at least is feels like I'm getting better at that part of it. Yeah. Well, in terms of like you know the a, a bit of a bit of humor that's just a, a funny dollop to you know something that you wrote like you know here you, you wrote like in 1990 your father your father would write like one son likes money the other words my daughter likes massage I like money words massage and sacred music and you're like okay Zeus it was like that. I- my wife pointed out to me at one point that I, like that I had developed a tick, like in the, at the end of the third paragraph of 
of my pieces for the New Yorker, there was always like a joke, kind of like slightly tongue in cheek, dry joke. And as soon as she pointed out, I had to stop doing it because it, I felt like, you know, that felt like the equivalent of a crutch word where you're using the same word over and over. And you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't, you know. I mean, she's probably read things more carefully than the average reader. When I was at Spy years and years ago, I tried and succeeded for a long time in, in slipping a Flintstones reference into every story that I wrote. <laughs> and I don't know, I have no idea why I did this, but I, it, I think it came up naturally like the first two times for whatever reason. It's, and then I was like, let's see how I follow and go out of this. And finally, actually the same editor who assigned me the piece about Gary Chandling and Brad Gray, uh, a lovely woman named Susan Morrison, said, hey, <laughs> you've written a Flintstones reference. And I was like, yep. And then I had to stop. Um, but I'm going to start again now. Actually, I'm just letting everyone know. So brace yourselves for some more uh, Wilma and Betty and Bam Bam coming up. Nice, yeah. Or like pulling the tail of a bird that just squawks into the abyss. <laughs> yeah, or running really fast in my in my car. Um, <laughs> you know, who knows? Uh, I, I think with humor, if you think about, it's like the old line about if you dissect a bird, it doesn't fly anymore. Like if you think too much about your own brand of humor. I remember years ago at a meeting at Esquire when I was going in to talk about writing for them. And I, and I ended up writing for them for a few years as a contributing editor, but like two of the editors were discussing me as if I were not there, like talking about my style and my approach and why I'd be perfect for the story. And I was not quite literally sticking my fingers in my ears, but I was sort of trying to go, la, 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 I can't hear you because I felt instinctively, I don't want to know what kind of writer you think I am because then I will just be trying to service your notion of that somehow, or I'm, there's a danger of that. Yeah. You'd be like a so cover almost, band of yourself. <laughs> that's, that's well said. Yeah. I think if, if you sort of start to jukeboxify yourself and just feel like, you know, you're Sean Mendez, you're the same chord progressions over and over. And it's like, all right. Yeah. Sounds like that breakoff was pretty tough for you, Sean. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. Like I, that's, I, I don't mean to pick on Sean Mendez. Um, it's funny because like a couple times people have said to me, I started reading a story about something and then I realized after like at this point that it was like, you must've written it because I, of X. And I, and it's sort of nice in the sense that people like have recognized your voice. And at the same time, I want them to stop there and not tell me because it's these three things you always do, or oh, yeah. it's your, you know, like I don't want to hear it. In the unlikely event that anyone out there is planning to give me a compliment that specifically <laughs> exposes all of my tricks, I would rather not know. <laughs> in uh, at, early on in the book, you you, um, you 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 draw draw a scene where you know your your father is up in his uh, up in his room and you're listening to his him talking to his caretaker, you know, through a baby monitor, and it was such an evocative thing because it really gets at the heart of how you know as we as we age we essentially kind of regress to being almost like children and infants and just hearing you know your you know your father and his advanced age and you know through a baby monitor was just really evocative in that sense so it's just uh it just it just got me thinking of just that that painful notion about how like you know the young become old or the old become young again yeah i think well, there's, yeah, I definitely felt like, and my father felt and, and hated the fact that he felt like he was being infantilized by all the people around him, which was 
true in a sense because you know and we're all we all know like how people talk to the elderly like in a sort of like loud voices like how are we feeling today you know oh, like, yeah, yeah and and my dad hated that because you know he he always had a great and perhaps even excessive sense of dignity and and like wanted to be treated you know as an adult probably when he was three um mm. and in fairness to him it's because you know he didn't get a whole lot of being treated as a as a kid because he grew up in this very waspy household being raised by servants but um and he said he was kind of like being was, raised by a mini bar or something yeah <laughs> well it was a waspy alcoholic household so yeah. yes he um so there was that going on and then also for my own part you know in writing this book that's that's, that's really m my effort to kind of understand him and get closer to him before he died i became aware in a lot of ways of ways in which i resembled him so i felt that i was becoming more and more like him or becoming more and more aware of the ways in which we were like, even though I'd set out both consciously and unconsciously to kind of not be like him and not repeat the things he did and, you know, be different. But there's a kind of Greek tragedy element to that of like, you know, where, you know, you get the, the Oracle of Delphi tells you, you're going to do X or Y. So you like leave the country and, determined not to do that and that's the only way of course in which you become that thing that you were told was going to happen and i so i think even as he was becoming younger in certain ways because he was helpless as he was getting sick and couldn't move around as much and was losing some of his memory and his grip on things i was becoming more aware of ways on which i was like him so there was a kind of we were it felt like the seismic plates that we were both on were shifting in ways that you know, if you read the book, uh, you can see how that all played out. But it was tumultuous. It's uh, it's always this push and pull of you're trying to run away. And the farther you run away, eventually you kind of end up kind of coming right to the start, too. Of uh, You end up being very similar. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I feel like my dad died a year and a half ago now. And um, I still, you know, I feel... I feel like I understand him better than when he died. Uh, one reason being that I, he made me his literary executor and I got to go through all his kind of journals and papers and letters. And, and there was a side he kept hidden from us. The reason that my sister and I particularly, but also my brother to some extent, um, we always felt like he was kind of, if we said the right thing to him at the right time while crossing our, you know, fingers behind our back, he would suddenly say, I loved you much more than you thought. And here's the secret reason why I couldn't tell you, you know, mm. we were always kind of trying to get it out, you know, something, get it out of him somehow. And I feel like it, it actually, I understood that he was just incredibly sensitive to feeling vulnerable or feeling, he just wasn't good with feeling. He had a lot of feelings, but they were, he kept them to himself, but anybody wrote them down because he was a writer. And I feel like I, that's also probably true of me that I, you know, people always think I'm calm and collected and I feel internally that's totally not the case, but I have, my daughter says I have resting bitch face. So <laughs> like, it just looks like I'm just sitting there kind of like whatevs, but it's actually my listening face as I pointed out to her a few times. Yeah. There's a lot going on in there and I feel like recognizing that commonality has also been helpful generally in, in realizing and, and sort of, I guess the, the word of the moment about a lot of people at the center of the culture is decentering the narrative. And I feel like actually it's kind of helpful to me in a, in a slightly different 
meaning of the phrase to decenter myself and realize that, you know, anyone you're talking to has a lot going on. There's the person who's mean to you on the subway or cuts in front of you in the line at the supermarket, their mother might've just died or they, you know, they just found out that their best friend is a fatal illness or who knows, you know, that a lot of those things are happening all around at all times. And if you just sort of think about it that way, I feel like it's helpful. Um, and not to make this sound like a public service announcement, public service announcement for empathy, but I, I do feel recognizing in my dad, who I'd always thought of as this Donish in the English Oxford sense rather than the Mario Puzo sense, Donish figure who respected and communicated only through logic and rationality, how much, how emotional and trembling he was at all times made me think like if he had that going on, then people who seem much more emotional obviously have that going on. Yeah, you're right, too, that, um, you know, the writers who came to grip me were wizards with structure who didn't flinch from their characters' dooms. And that made me think, too, this was a spe- must have been especially difficult in this book because, you know, you're at the center of of some doom that you really run towards and embrace for the story and, and very unflinchingly. So, you know, for you, how it's very raw and a very raw book for you to write. So how how challenging was it for you to kind of run towards the doom and actually keep you in it and not run from it? Well, so what you're talking about, I think is, um, I, my, I discovered that my dad had been unfaithful to my mom after he died. And then I had also been unfaithful to my wife and I wrote about that. And, um, she discovered that and I wrote about that. And, um, I only wrote about it because we agreed after we started working on our marriage, after I behaved so terribly to her um, and hurt her in ways that I never wanted to because I never wanted her to find out, but that I really did hurt her terribly and that the shame and regret and misery that that caused me was such that I wanted to t- entirely redirect my life. Um, it was a huge bolt of lightning and opportunity, even though it was also the worst moment of my life. And if she had not, I had already written two versions of the book, one before my dad died, one rewritten after he died, and I'd read his papers. If she had, at that point, when that discovery felt like it could not be in the book, if she didn't want me to write about it, I would have pulped the book gladly because it was way more important to me to work on my family and marriage with her. Um, she's the hero, sort of hero of the book. Um, yeah, I agree. So, and she, you know, she agreed with me that we, that we together, you know, wanted to go forward and tell the truth and make it a a true book, knowing that that's wouldn't be easy for me and it wouldn't be easy for her and people would receive it in all sorts of ways that we couldn't control. And, um, but it was a decision we collectively made and if we hadn't made it, there would be no book. And so we really, you know, I feel like that was the hard part and then writing it was hard in a different way just because it was very hard to get any kind of emotional distance on it. Cause it was still kind of happening when I was writing it because we were still, yeah. it was very, it was very fresh and we were just started seeing a therapist and we're working you know, on our marriage and talking about very painful, difficult stuff. And so, whereas like when I'm looking back at things that happened with my dad when I was seven, you know, there's a fair amount of water under the bridge and the feelings might still be strong, but they've definitely had time to 
settle and you've got a vantage point. And this, the vantage point here felt like me in a car spinning off a bridge into a gorge. And so uh, I had no idea what was going on. And so trying to work that into the book, some of which was staying the same, a lot of which was changing. It was, it felt like I was trying to do a lot of things at once. And um, I guess other people will have to judge whether it feels like it works as as one story or feels like it doesn't. And I don't know. In the recent master class piece you wrote in The New Yorker, you know, you cite uh, a quote from St. Vincent who said, uh, you know, an artist's job is to metabolize shame. And I had just revisited the master class piece. I just read the first few pages after having read the book. And I was like, that really, I really put a pin in that because that really stuck out to me. Um, was the, you know, was this book in a way for you to, like, as St. Vincent says, metabolize shame? It was. And I remember when I was interviewing her, you know, and she was talking about that, which she may also have talked about it in her class. I can't remember at this point, but that came up with her. And I remember thinking, because I, at that point I was in the middle of still kind of working through some of this stuff that um, like that stayed with me as like a, both an admirable goal of how to do it and also a way to make the shame that I definitely felt about my behavior have a purpose. Like maybe you know, I can make something that will reach other people and be, I don't want to, it's not, it's not a social tract. It's a, it's a memoir, but it might be, might help people think or feel differently about their own circumstances. And there might be something in it that, or even it might just help me kind of work through it. I don't know. Like, I think it, I think definitely this second part of it is true that writing about it kind of and putting it down and kind of getting it, you know, getting it onto the page kind of, is purgative and that was helpful. Uh, and then the rest of it, you know, like I, I feel like you, you kind of toss the book onto the, into a brook and then it disappears and people find it either passes by their house and they pick it up or it doesn't pass by their house and they don't pick it up. And that's, and who knows from there. Um, but I do feel like that quote, yeah, meant a lot to me. You know, given that, you know, it's for, you know, for years, I think this is kind of, kind of true for me too, just kind of like at odds with, you know, with the father or your father, my father, it's just, you know, you spend a good chunk of your time kind of very much running away from it, trying to be divorced from it, very opposite. Uh, but eventually, you know, in that time, they're getting older and you're, you're getting older, but they're getting closer to, to passing. And then you've, before you know it, You've wasted, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe 20 years. And then suddenly you're like, oh, shit, like they're not going to be around here uh, that much longer. And uh, it's something I'm grappling with. And I wonder, you know, for you, like if there's an element of in that running away period, maybe if if there is some regret or things you wish you could have done differently. I I mean, I think if the book is anything, it's a uh, it's. It's a an ode to regret of a lot of kinds. Um, mm-hmm. Some about my dad and wishing that he had just been able, which he wasn't. So, but we can still have wishes that we know can't be granted um, with our parents often. But I do wish he'd been able to communicate more about himself and who he really was while he was alive, instead of like leaving it for me to find after he's dead. Since when it when I think my real you know, one's relationship with one's parents continues after they're dead. It's like there's still used, my mom died 19 years ago and I feel differently about her now than I did when she died. 
I have a different sense of her and I, and since then I've had kids myself and I am more appreciative of the, the great things she did, um, that I was less appreciative of before I had kids. So that's all true. So there's regrets about his inability to kind of open up. There's regret about the fact that I, at a certain point without like ever saying the words aloud or whispering them even to myself, but I, at some point kind of gave up on him and decided I'm just going to be kind of friendly, civil, loving, polite in a certain way that hasn't a limit because I'm not going to get, if I want more from him, if I want a totally open, candid, emotional exchange that feels like everything's on the table and tell me everything you're going on. I want to help. And that feels open and, you know, all, all frequencies on the spectrum or can be addressed. That's not going to, that wasn't going to happen. It felt like, cause I tried, you know, I felt like I tried and it, he just wasn't comfortable with that. So I kind of stopped and I think as a result, and I write about this in the book, I became blind to the ways in which he was trying. And I, you know, I went back, I went back and read his letters to me again. I stopped reading his letters because a lot of his letters were really super long and full of kind of academic detail about places he'd been to and people he'd talked with on, in his jobs as the head of a foundation and people unknown to me, cultures unknown to me, you know, somewhat arcane and digressive letters I felt. And so I kind of stopped reading them. And then I, so I missed the ones that were personal and direct and aimed at me and instead of what it felt like posterity, because I kind of tuned them out. So I regret that. I, I regret having, you know, there's a quote in the movie, the Philadelphia story, Catherine Hepburn's character says, the time to make up your mind about people is never, hmm. which I always liked. And I think that's right. Uh, I know, I know with me, like my, with my, um, you know, first book that came out a while ago, I remember giving it to my, uh, you know, dad to read in, in that similar vein, like, oh, all right, he'll get some, yeah, I'll see, see what he thinks. And, you know, and, and, you know, at first he, his first thing was on Christmas day, 2010 or something. He just, he just said how you know, it was boring. And, and then I let him, uh, and then a couple of years later, there was just a, a regional award ceremony and I was winning like a second place ribbon for a feature I wrote and uh, he was able to come. And then I was like, I was uh, very happy with myself. And, uh, he went la later say, he's like, man, they give awards out to everybody here. I was like, okay, all right, I'm sort of done, done with this. But it, it, it there was a moment in the book and that's why I'm bringing this up because it really resonated with me that, you know, eventually, you know, your, your dad told you that you were his favorite living writer and then you later learned that he had kept files of all your articles. But it's, but it's like you later learned. It's this thing like he couldn't tell you that, but he, you later find like, oh, I was important to him. And this did mean something to him, even though if he couldn't say it to my face. So. Yeah. You know, yeah, there was. Uh, first of all, I'm really sorry about your dad's responses. Those sound like not what you were hoping to hear. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But maybe, you know, like, I, I, I don't know your dad, but um, I know my dad somewhat. And I know that, you know, he himself was a writer and had, and you wrote in his journals about trying not to stifle my, my writing, but with his own competitive instincts, he was a very competitive guy. 
Um, so I think he, to his credit, he was aware of the difficulties of, you know, two writers, same family. He wrote an autobiographical novel about growing up in Pittsburgh. I wrote a memoir about growing up, you know, the next generation. There was a sort of, we didn't really talk about it directly, this sort of like idea of, you know, who was doing what as a writer. But, you know, he would show me all the stuff that he'd written and ask for my edits and thoughts. And I sort of stopped showing my stuff to him, maybe for reasons of insecurity or maybe because I just felt like he wasn't responding. Maybe like your, with your dad, I felt like he wasn't responding the way I wanted him to. You know, like mm-hmm. often writers in general, like you're hoping you've got it in the back of your in my head anyway. I'm not going to speak for all, but like my sense is from other writers I've talked to, too, like you're hoping for the person to say that this thing in this way with the commas here and the semicolons, like you want this very specific response, which is in my case, like really warm, emotional, and very specific. Like I really liked when you did this here because it set up that and it was so great that this thing happened like where people like, not just like, oh, that's great, you know, like generic, like, uh, or, you know, as I said earlier, even worse, yeah, I started your story. It looks good. You know, like where you're like, uh. but my dad, I felt like, you know, if he did have specific responses, it was often to like raise a question about something or say, why did you bother to do that story in the first place? And I read about that a little bit in the book. Like, what was the point in publishing that story? And, you know, which is a little bit like they give out prizes for anything. You're sort of like, wah, wah. Because the only kind of response is that it comes to mind is this like, is well, fuck you, which isn't very helpful, uh, it turns out. So so that's sort of why I why, you know, avoided a lot of topics with my dad, because I didn't want to get to the point of having to say fuck you. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I've. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Um, well, well, Ted, uh, the last thing I want to ask you, and it's something I ask uh, guests of the show, is uh, when we bring this airliner down for a landing, is asking for a recommendation for the listeners of some kind. Uh, and that, like I said, that can be anything from a brand of coffee to a pair of socks to a fanny pack, you know, whatever. So, uh, yeah, what might you recommend to the listeners out there? Well, for years, I was a big fan of papermate pens, and then I've gone off them because I've decided that they just aren't reliable anymore. Like they stopped, I don't know what they changed their manufacturing process. I know I'm getting in very deep here, but I will, I would like to give a, a tip of the hat cap to Bic. The crystal medium blue pen I nice. think is very reliable, good solid line. I'm a left-hander, so I tend to smear my notes. If I, if it's like the ink doesn't dry fast enough and it dries at the perfect moment where by the time my hand gets across the next level, it's, it's already dry. Um, and it's legible and it's clear and it kind of has a nice dark blue solid, you know, authoritative look to it. Nice. Well, fantastic. Well, Ted, this is so wonderful to get to speak to you. Uh, I've been a longtime admirer of your work and I, I love this book and I just, yeah, I constantly, whenever I see the, see your byline, I just know I'm in for, uh, uh, like a, a good ride and that's uh that's all i can ask for from a writer uh, from a writer like you so just thanks for the work thanks for coming on the show and best of luck with uh with the new book thanks brendan uh, i really appreciate your time and great questions and it's been a real pleasure for me thanks for having me wasn't that great a lot of fun thanks to tad thanks to you for sticking around for the parting shot you know, I've bandied that email that he wrote me a, a few 
that a few years ago, eight years ago at this point. I've longed to put it into practice. It could be that I'm simply not that good. He wanted me to make sure I wasn't using that email for publication or anything. It was just a, a correspondence between two of us, and I assured him it wasn't. I'm not sure if talking about it here constitutes a breaking of that treaty, but nevertheless, here we go. It's profile writing 101, right? Like He talks to the people closest to the central figure, and he asks that person who else he should talk to, and so then he talks to all of them until eventually you, you get to a point where things start to get repetitive. Then you take your material and maybe organize it into childhood or Hollywood or whatever. But also you start looking at what structure would be best for the piece. And it's unique to every story. And he was like so key on like structure. Is it like structure is storytelling? It was very nice of him to entertain that desperate 34-year-old Brendan who eight years later is equally desperate but giving fewer shits. Maybe. I still give probably... A few too many shits. In any case, like anything in this crazy field, all you can control is your effort. So I'll keep trying. I hope you will too. So stay wild, see and efforts. And if you can do, interview. See ya.